Hello, I'm your host, Olivia Braffman, and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge us ambitious women that little bit closer to figuring out how to navigate both the fulfilling career and the family we desire. And well, challenge is the role we're supposed to play in it all. Each week, I'm going to be talking to the inspiring women who, in their own special way, have done just that. Let's get into it. In today's episode, I am beyond excited to be joined by the Jill Whitty Collins. Born near Liverpool after attending her local comprehensive and driven both by her will to succeed and love of languages, she attended the prestigious Cambridge University. Upon graduating with her baby son in tow, she joined Procter & Gamble, or P&G as it's more commonly known today, where she spent the next 26 years of her career, shooting through the ranks all the way up to senior vice president and responsible for brands such as Olay, Always and Pantene, and with a reputation as a world-class brand architect and business renovator. This is where Jill started to see the impact of gender diversity issues on women and their careers, unfortunately defeating incredible talent everywhere. This resulted in her writing a provocative book named Why Men Win at Work and How We Can Make Inequality History, sharing Jill's personal experience and learnings on the issue. The book, described as mind-blowing and game-changing, is an absolute must-read for listeners of this podcast. Whatever your job, whatever your industry, whatever your gender, I will share a link in the description so you can join the force too. Jill now works as a keynote speaker, consultant, non-exec director, and executive coach, imparting her decades of experience and unique expertise to some of the biggest brands we know today. Jill, it is such a pleasure and an honour to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much and thank you for that lovely introduction. Of course, of course. I wanted to kick off with a bit about you and reflecting on, on the past. As you think about your upbringing, what were some of the most character-defining things that happened to you growing up as a child that you think really shaped the person that you are today? I mean, so many things. You know, I was brought up near Liverpool. Um, I was the third of three daughters. So my my parents were, you know, absolute feminists. My dad, you know, bless him. He had no choice really but to be a, a feminist, as I say. He was he was the one boy with three sisters. He had three daughters. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know whether he really had a choice but to support women, but, you know, he certainly did. And, you know, both my parents um, raised us to believe that we were absolutely the equal of anybody. We could be the equal of anybody, whatever gender. And I absolutely believe that. And I absolutely believed that for a very, very long time without even questioning it, without even questioning that anyone else would think differently so that was absolutely foundational for me you know we were absolutely the same expectations of of us as a parent would have of any boy which at that time in that 
part of the world was not necessarily a given. I did have some really intelligent female friends who who definitely expectations were higher of their brothers than they were of them. So, you know, I will always be immensely grateful to my mum and dad for that. And I think as well, you know, the school experience, I was at a mixed comprehensive school. I was you know, I was not a genius. I am not a genius, but, you know, I was intelligent enough and hardworking enough that I was pretty much always top of the class in most subjects. And then obviously went on to Cambridge from there. So that very much, you know, taught that experience again, reinforced that I was and I could be anybody's equal. It never occurred to me that I wasn't equal to any boy or any man. So I think that the profound confidence in yourself that that, that that gives you not to question that is extremely important. And I think it's a gift that I'd love to give to all girls. Now, having said that, the reality is that the world conspires to make us stop believing that at a certain point, And we need to be ready for that. But I think it's really important to have that base and you know, I certainly had that base, frankly, thanks to my parents, to my family and, and to my school experience as well. I know a lot of girls who went to all girls schools and actually that's, you know, there are many benefits of going to all girls schools because, you know, you don't have all of those distractions of, of the boys and all that confidence damaging um, stuff that comes with with being with boys so girls do actually perform generally better in girls schools but I think then it's even tougher to go out into the real world where there are boys and there are male dominant cultures and you're just kind of you just need to learn how to cope with those later rather than um, sooner so yeah very it is what it is isn't it your experience is what it is so you you have to take the learning from it and and move on and I think, you know, clearly, so you were brought up with a level of confidence, clearly just a determined young woman at that age in terms of your capability. You go on to attend Cambridge University. Was it always the plan to go to university and, and then was there an after plan following that at the time? Or was it just you were excelling in school and so university felt like, the next best place and why not shoot for the stars and go to the top university in, in the UK? You know, I always knew I wanted to go to university and that was in part thanks to my uh, my oldest sister, Paula, who who went to university and, you know, kind of laid that trail. So it was, I always knew I wanted to. And that is, you know, frankly, that's why I worked hard at school. I was an absolute swat at school. Anyone who knows, who knew me at school would would tell you. But I was very clear, even at that young age, like 11, 12, that I needed to do well, get my exams, get myself to university. And I absolutely had no clue what I wanted to do after that. But I knew I wanted to go to university. And I absolutely knew that I wanted to study French. I I, um, I was in love with France from the age of five when my parents first took us as a family on a camping holiday. Just absolutely loved it. Even age five, loved the language. Just thought it was fascinating. So I knew it would be university. I knew it would be French. Had no idea beyond that. And obviously, you know, I had no real thoughts of Cambridge until I was actually doing my A-levels. And, you know, my my college, I was at, at Witness College then and they basically said, you know, we think you could. And they took us for a, 
a day trip, took a few of us. And I thought, why not? So I found a college that I hadn't heard of on University Challenge because I thought that might be a bit easier to get into. I'm not sure it was easy to get into. It's a great college, actually, Selwyn College. And I went for it. And I didn't, you know, at the time, I just, I, I tried, you know, I tried. I had no idea if, if I could. I knew I was up against a lot of people who were educated in very expensive schools, often down south. But I thought, hey, have a go, and if not, I'll go somewhere else. So very lucky to get in, and it was absolute privilege to study there. I studied, studied, you know, under the supervision of some absolutely brilliant men and women. Studied French, French literature, French language. Loved it, and then obviously now, you know, I live in France, so um, my love of the country and the language has stayed. That's incredible. All the way from the age of five, it stayed with you. And in your second year of attending university, you had your son and obviously then graduated, you know, huge congratulations, navigating and and juggling all of that. What impact did that have on you at the time? Well, obviously that was not planned. We always, um, always joked, we we did not go to the family planning clinic and say, we'd like to start a family now uh, in the second year of university. But that happened and it's you know I feel extremely lucky that it did happen actually because I I'm not sure I ever would have made that choice later I think it's one of the surely it's it's one of the biggest decisions you have to make in life right to actually make the conscious and proactive decision to bring another life into the world and to frankly put an end to your own life as you know it forever and to bring someone into this world that you will worry about every single day of your life until the end a massive decision and I didn't have to make that decision because it happened so feel very lucky about that and then also you know we we can talk about it more but actually starting a career with a child rather than making the choice to break up your career for a child is actually with hindsight not a bad way to do it it's not a bad way to do it at all I think it I used to watch by the time I was a few years into my career you know my son was you know kind of five six years old and I was starting to watch women go off and have to manage their jobs with a tiny baby awake most of the night and I was thinking I don't know how you're doing that and frankly my my life was much much easier by that point so so yes that that happened my family were incredibly supportive including financially to help us get through that the college Selwyn College were phenomenal they gave us honestly when I found out I was pregnant I, you know I'm a very pragmatic person I was actually sitting in my tiny college room thinking well I could put the cot there under the window and and I, I was I was planning it that way and the college said we're, we're going to give you a little apartment so that you've got a bedroom and and you know they helped with with um, the funding so we got through that, but obviously then, you know, I finished finished my degree, but then by the end of, of my university career, I had pretty significant debts, as you can imagine, being a student with childcare fees, Cambridge nursery fees, as you can imagine, are not, not small. So pretty big debts actually to pay back by the end. So for me, it was, you know, none of the 
luxury of thinking about maybe doing a sabbatical like sabbatical like lots of my um my friends were doing it was okay we are going straight out into the workplace and we are going to get some money and pay off some of those debts and unfortunately i i had applied to procter gamble for their brand management job for their brand management scheme and they had offered me one of those roles which was you know extremely exciting by that point I knew that brand building marketing was really what I was interested in and what I wanted to do so I you know got my degree in in the June and then started that 26 year career in the September Um, and as said I started day one with a two-year-old so right from the off I, I had to, I was in at 9.05 because I'd, I'd planned a, a nursery close to the office. So as soon as the doors opened, son Joe dropped there, zoom into work, in there. And then I was leaving at, you know, 10 to 6 to go, to go pick him up. So I had to, from day one, learn to manage the work in that time and make my priority calls based on that time. And I remember thinking, how am I going to compete with these other people, my peers, who were, you know, they were coming in, some of them were coming in at seven, leaving at 11. And I thought, how can I physically compete with that with fewer hours? But, you know, I did. I, I did. I just, I got it done in the time that I had and I prioritized. And I was, you know, I was... I was the fastest in my year to get promoted to the next level and then to brand manager level and then to director level. So it's it's a great lesson that when you have to do it, you do, and I do always wonder if I had started without a child, without a family, would I have worked longer hours and would I have just filled up those extra hours? And actually, would I have been, would I have been as good? Would I have been as focused? Would I have made the right priority calls. I don't know. I'm really glad that I actually had to make that work because I think that was ultimately, that's been very good for my well-being because now my son's 32 now. So, you know, now I don't need to pick him up at nursery anymore, but now I get my work. I'm very much in that discipline of I I don't start too early. I exercise before I start work. I really, you know, try to wrap up by six and then I've got the evening to, you know, for, for me, for my friends, for my family, for the people that I love. So I'm really glad that I I learned that right from the off. I think it's fascinating. And it, you know, to your point, is it easier if you've started the family before you've started the career? Because A, you're setting the boundaries from day one, you're not getting into bad behaviors that you, you then have to sort of backtrack against that have stood you in in a good light up to this point and you think it's suddenly going to be at the detriment of your future progression. The other is a lot of women are having children much later on because of the fear of there is not a right time to do this. It's always going to be disruptive if you're midway through your career, whatever, you know, wherever you are. So I totally take the point that it worked in your favor and I'm fascinated that despite you setting the boundaries and starting at a particular time and having to finish at a particular time because you had bigger priorities elsewhere. What was it about you and the way that you were working and managing your time that meant it wasn't in any way at the detriment of your progression, clearly the opposite, that that meant you could excel faster than some of your peers that didn't have didn't have those kind of personal priorities? 
I will answer that in a sec, but I do want to just come back to to what you said about it maybe being an advantage to have done it the way I did it. And obviously, you know, I'm not I'm not recommending to any young woman on the call get get pregnant at university, and and that's a highly efficient way to manage your career. And you know, if if, if it happens, I would say absolutely go for it. If you want to, you can you can make it work. I'm not saying that, but what I think is is fascinating is that we. We just accept, don't we, that it's going to be an issue for women if a woman wants a child, and not every woman does want um, to have kids, but for women who do, that it, oh, it's going to be an issue for her career. And this is part of the issue, is we, it's still so embedded in us that, that having a child is an impact on a woman's career, but it's not an impact on a man's career. And because we do still have that expectation that it will be women who will, you know, predominantly take care of the house, take care of running the family, take responsibility for the childcare, which includes organising it, doing it, but also worrying about it. And I think, you know, ultimately, we're not going to get anywhere until we change that. We have to get to a point where we're gender neutral about parenting. And yes, of course, you know, physically for now, at least in the foreseeable future, it's the woman who has to carry, carry and deliver the baby and, you know, breastfeed if that is the choice that is made. Beyond that, however, men are absolutely equally capable of doing all of the rest. And by the way, I know most men I know who are fathers absolutely want to. They want to be 50-50 at home. They want to be 50-50 with the kids. They don't want to spend their entire life working. You know, the, the book's called Why, Why Men Win at Work. What most men will tell, tell me is, well, we're certainly not winning at life because we're missing out on one hell of a lot. So I do believe we'll never be 50-50 at work until we're 50-50 at home and in terms of childcare as well and you know paternity leave so important you know parental leave it should be equal it is in some places it absolutely should be flexible working policies all of those things they should be gender neutral and really gender neutral you know on on paper not yes on paper but also in practice so I think that's all so important we we shouldn't have women in this situation of thinking I'd like a child but how do I fit it in with, with my career if she's got a partner? You know, it should be the expectation. Imagine a world where if you're a boss, it is just as likely that the man on your team is going to disappear for long parental leave or is going to want flexible work or is going to want hybrid work. Imagine a world where that was just as likely an expectation as the woman. It would change so much, wouldn't it? So I'll answer your question now, though. (laughs) What do I think uh, they saw? I do do believe that the the fact that I, I had this fixed amount of time in the day between the nursery drop off and the nursery pickup, and then ultimately the, the school drop-off. And I did have after-school uh, care until six when he went to school as well. I do believe that just out of necessity, that turned me into a really, really good priority setter. And I've always been strategic. I think, you know, I'm a massive fan, a fan of Strengths Finder. I think it's just brilliant, that philosophy. And I... I'm a, a, a certified strengths finder coach. I love it. I think it's 
such a fantastic way for people to find their their confident core. But I strategic is is my number one strength, and it's that always has been. That's a natural universe given talent, and we we all have those. But I think that that enforced day of you know call it eight hours. I think that really, if strategic and focus were raw talents, I think it really honed those. I really worked those muscles because I had to, because I was faced, you know, with I I will run out of time at six o'clock today, or I will run out of time at six o'clock tomorrow for the meeting on Friday. So I just had to be brutal. And I had it as a natural talent, but I think I really used it. And I think I think that my bosses saw that. It was the, I guess, the clarity and the efficiency that comes with that talent and that necessity. They like that because, you know, senior managers, here's the thing about them. They've got no time. They've got no time. You know, they are constantly running from one thing to another. And one of the things I always saw in senior managers, and I was guilty of it when I became a senior manager, is just that impatience of, you know, somebody not cutting through and getting to it as getting to the key issue, getting to the key solution as quickly and clearly as possible. I think they love it when you do that. And I was doing that just kind of naturally. And because I had to, because I had no time. So I think they saw that. And I was, you know, I'm first and foremost a brand builder. You know, I've written a book about gender equality and diversity. And I'm very passionate about that mission, as you know, about the equality mission. I'm first and foremost a brand builder and a business strategist though and I was I was good at that I always loved brands from a a young age and I loved that work I absolutely loved the work of working with my team working with creative agencies to build brands and make them stronger and fix issues and get them back to their fundamentals I genuinely loved that work and you can't fake that and I, I deeply believe in life that if we do what we're naturally good at and what we love, that is the secret to success. And I think where so many of us go wrong is we end up in jobs and situations where we're coping, we're doing fine, we're capable, but we're not really on that point of, you know, wow, that is your absolute superpower and you love it and you're in flow and because we're not doing that, it's all a bit of a grind. And by the way, when we're just we're never going to be as good at that work as the person who's got it as their superpower and their passion. So hey, it's one thing I could do for everyone, it would be really help them get onto what is your superpower? Are you using it? If not, how do we get you into a situation where you're using all your superpowers? 80 plus percent of the time in your working day and then you will just see you're in flow all the time and you're not clock watching and you'll absolutely thrive so I think that's what's and that's what happened for me I, I was very lucky to find that work I had no clue when I went to university I knew I wanted to study French um, I knew I was interested in that 
I knew I wanted to be at university. I had no idea. And it was really through the process of meeting people at university. It was actually somebody in a couple of years ahead of me at my college told me about um, brand management at Procter & Gamble. It was actually Tim Davey, who's now the who's now the Director General of the, the BBC. And I remember him telling me about, I've, I've been offered a job as a brand manager at Procter & Gamble. And he told me about it. And in 30 seconds, I thought, that is the job I want. And then I started uh, the recruitment process and, uh, and, and got it. So I feel extremely lucky that I kind of stumbled. I didn't even know that existed. I didn't even know brand management existed when I was 19 years old. So I think anything we can do to yeah, help people know, know their superpowers, know their passions and match them to the work, it is, I think it's ultimately the only way to success, you know, really, and to happiness, by the way. And as you said, it comes through, it shines through. And I think particularly with flexible working now, hybrid working or even remote working, it used to be that people played the card of I'll come in early and I'll leave late, even if I'm really not producing any good work. At least people, it looks like I'm putting the time in and and I'll be somewhat rewarded for that. Actually, if you're not present physically in front of those people that can excel your career up, it really comes down to the output that's going to be the make or break to you progressing. And maybe that makes it slightly more of an even playing field that people can't see necessarily that you're doing a pickup or leaving early or whatever it might be, but they're actually just seeing the true output and, and talent that you bring to that job. And that's better. I think it's, it's true. I think that's obviously, it, you know, really important, you know, ultimately, you know, you have to deliver and you have to be, be good. Having said that, visibility bias presenteeism is unfortunately a thing right we, we know and we've seen this through the pandemic and we've seen this through the move to flexible work during and since and the fact that we, we've got some you know extremely otherwise strong leaders saying they want people in the office they want to see them and it, it, it is I think it's a very human thing a, a very human a natural thing to you know want to know people and see people and see their work and you know I talk in the book about the umbrella theory and I think it is one of the mistakes that people make and honestly more more women make than men do is that belief in the myth of meritocracy that belief that if I do the work and I get good results, then everything else will take care of itself. And it just isn't true. And men generally know that it isn't true. They know that you you have to, you don't just do the work, you have to be, the work has to be visible, you have to be visible, you have to be known. So the way I think about it is it, it's like, as far as our bosses are concerned, we're all working under umbrellas, right? All they see is the tops of umbrellas. And if we don't ever move that umbrella aside and invite our manager under and say, I want to update you on my work, I want to update you on this project, I want to get your input, they may honestly never have any idea of what work we're doing and of how strong it is. And I've seen so many women get so frustrated in their careers when time and time again, they're seeing somebody else more often than not a man 
get the job or the project or the promotion that they believe they deserved based on their work because he was more savvy about the umbrella theory and he was more savvy about, you know, investing that time in networking with the boss, um, updating the boss, making himself visible, making his work visible. So I was, by the way, useless at this in my early career. And I had I had an experience that taught me about this. And that's when I I came up in my mind with the concept of the umbrella theory. That was when I was a, as the director for the beauty business in the UK. And ever I, I came up with the umbrella theory and every woman who's been coached or mentored by me since will tell you that one of the first things I taught her was the umbrella theory because very frustrating if you don't get it and you don't remember it. Well, I want to talk about that because, you you know, you mentioned as you just did, you didn't see the diversity theory because it didn't impact you for the first, say, 20 years of your career. And then all of a sudden it hits you in the face. You can't unsee it. And I guess at that point, you're at the power where you're responsible for promoting those people and, and excelling their careers. And you're probably seeing that certain men are making themselves more visible to you than than certain women. And clearly the, the impact on you was profound. What was it just stepping into the light where you're responsible for the advancement of your teams that allowed you to suddenly see it? Or what was it that suddenly hit you in the face and gave you that sort of light bulb moment of what was really going on? Firstly, I would say, don't get me wrong. It's not that I was unaware of you know gender inequality issues and I you know I was absolutely knew that there were that things happen and and I'd seen other people have have issues I personally hadn't I had been extremely lucky I had not been affected personally by any of it and it hadn't held me back as I said I was you know promoted very quickly through brand manager, director, general manager, senior vice president. So for me, the the moment where I saw it was at that senior vice president level. My last job at PNG was senior vice president for the beauty business for Europe, India, Middle East and Africa. And at that level, for the first time in my career, in my life actually, I was I found myself in a male dominant culture. And I, I'm, again, so lucky that I got to that point of my life without ever having been in a male-dominant culture. I wasn't in one at home. I wasn't in one at school. I wasn't in one at university in my college, which was very balanced. And at my company, I'd come, you know, it's a good company. It's very focused on equality and diversity. I also came through the brand function, which was very balanced up until director level it was 50 50 I didn't know what it was to be in a a room full of men until senior vice president and then suddenly I saw it I was in board meetings exec meetings 80 percent men and it is well any woman will tell you it's totally different to be in a, a room that's 50 50 versus a room that's 80-20 or even more even more male dominant than that. It is like a climate change 
It is like a different planet and you are the same person doing and saying all of the same things that have always been very successful to that point and absolutely not landing in the same way. And I really saw, I felt the impact of it, but most importantly, I really saw the impact on the other women that I I knew, women who I knew outside that culture, totally different women in this male dominant culture, totally different contribution, you know, not for the better and became absolutely fascinated by that. I I was genuinely, at that point, I didn't understand it. I didn't know anything about all these issues at that point. And I was really intrigued. I didn't, what is this that is happening? So I read a lot, books, research, everything. And I started to understand it and also you know, just started to, you know, think about my experience. And I, I really, I really felt that I understood what was happening in a way that I never really heard anybody explain it, I guess, because it was from the point of view, not of a, an academic or, you know, an HR expert or, but, you know, from somebody who was actually a woman who was actually at a senior level and was actually living it and watching other women at my level living it. So I, I saw it and I made myself a promise at that point that when I left that, um, that job, that company, the first thing I would do would be to write about it and to capture it in the hope that it would be helpful to other women. But more importantly, actually, what I really wanted to do was show men was speak to men and get men to understand that, you know, I I believe most men are good and decent and certainly virtually all of the men I ever came across at at P&G were very good, very decent men. And what I wanted those men to understand is you're a good man. You are nonetheless, unintentionally, every day in the workplace doing things which are holding women back. And I want to help you see that. And I want to help you see why that creates an issue. And I want to help you see what you have to gain as well from that, because it's not a woman's issue. It's actually an issue for everybody and an opportunity for everybody. So yes, I wanted to, um, I, I saw it and I wanted to write about it and capture it because what really fascinates me still is why you know, a lot of people, there's a lot written about the data and the data is important. You know, over 90% of the leadership positions in the world are held by men. They're making all the decisions or influencing all the decisions on everything. Right now, they're making all the decisions on climate change. You know, as we speak, they make all the decisions. And that is important data to know that. But what's really interesting is why does it happen? Why does it happen despite the fact that we know it's a bad thing? So we know it's bad for business. We know it's bad for the world. We know it's bad for our family lives, our personal lives. And we know that men are not intentionally doing it. So why does it happen? And all those invisible, unconscious and unintentional forces combining, I think that's incredibly interesting. And I think when you understand those forces, then you can act on them, then you can do something. So I wanted to capture all of that. This huge underrepresentation, which is, you know, hugely apparent from the data that comes out, how out of interest, because you are not necessarily the 
the norm when it comes to having children. I think the majority of women have children post-university, you know, in and amongst their career trajectory, how much of it is, is to do with women having children or is that actually not not a big contributor to the reason why there's huge underrepresentation at the top? It is a contributor, but not necessarily in the way that we think. The, the data would say that becoming a mother does not intrinsically make a woman lose her personal ambition or her desire to succeed in her work, whatever form that works, that work takes. You know, it is not, there is not some, you know, correlation between get pregnant, lose all career ability. It doesn't happen. But obviously what does happen is if we live in a world, which unfortunately we do, where the expectation is that the woman will predominantly become the COO of the house and of the kids and not just carry them through through pregnancy and give birth to them, but then be the primary responsible for the rest of time. In that world, of course, that, that then becomes an issue because that creates an imbalance. So until we eat, truly equalize parental leave and parental policies and flexible work policies and all of those things make those truly gender neutral and you know not just on paper but in practice to the point that genuinely when a man requests those things his request is welcomed in exactly the same way as a woman's is because that is not the case today even companies where on paper they have gender neutral policies the response of managers is very sexist usually to men it's you know men will tell you that the ex woman asked for flexible work and it was of course of course of course of course i ask for it and eyebrows are raised and i'm not taking my career seriously enough and you know, fundamentally sexist. So all of those things mean that because we've constructed things that way, of course, having kids is affecting the women that do it. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that certainly, certainly doesn't change a, a woman. If a woman wanted to be successful and have a job and contribute in that way before, she still does. Now, what, what does happen, though, is that push-pull phenomenon. That's that's not my theory, but it's a, a, a very brilliant theory. What you see from many women is they are, they're being pulled by the kids and the family and all of that stuff that they, they have to do. If they're also being pushed by their workplace because of all of these equality and diversity issues, like not getting promoted when she feels she deserved the promotion, not getting the pay rise when she believed she deserved it, having a suspicion that she's not being paid equally for doing the same work as a man, which, by the way, the data says she isn't. She's probably being paid, on average, 16% less. All of those things making her frustrated and pushing her. If she's then also being pulled by the family and the kids, and, by the way, if she's in a situation where she has a partner who can work and can cover the financials, and by the way, factoring in the cost of childcare, which, you know, as you know, is, I think, in the UK more expensive than it is anywhere in the world to the point that it's, 
hardly worth someone working at all, that push-pull combination can make it more likely that a woman will say, sod this, frankly, I'm out. But that has nothing to do with her fundamental talent or ambition or ability to build a career. It's what we've done to her. It's what the workplace has done to her. I think that's the thing. And even with the most supportive partner that wants to to contribute 50-50 to the raising of the family, that partner is somewhat reliant on their employer also wanting that and also promoting that, you know, with the best will in the world. If, if that's not, if you're, if you're part of a system that doesn't allow for it, it becomes a very challenging thing to, to opt to do. And then you're stuck in the vicious cycle. Absolutely. And most, unfortunately, most employers have fundamentally sexist assumptions still about the role of the man versus the role of the woman. You know, Men are four times more likely to have a partner at home who will take care of the house, the home, the family, the kids. And, you know, if you think about that, combined with the fact we know women are on average doing 80% of that work, the assumption that many men at all levels, but particularly at those senior levels have is literally, don't you have a wife to do that? Don't you have, you know, that is a very old fashioned assumption, but frankly, still one that is very much alive in many, many people's minds. And and as said, even if the company policy is on paper gender neutral, the managers and the bosses who have to live it, you know, if they don't really believe that it should be gender neutral, then in reality, it never happens. I know men who, I have a very good friend who lives in Sweden where they have equal parental leave. And he did take his parental leave, but found it extremely tough because he faced a lot of raised eyebrows about taking it and leaving his very serious projects and was reluctant to share it. And, you know, I said to him, please take it, please take all of it and please role model it because we're only going to change this if men act as role models and they do it and they tell everyone how fantastic it is. And, you know, that's the only way we'll change it. We're not going to change it if men keep avoiding doing it because they're embarrassed they're going to be made fun of or not taken seriously right it's the bias so you know great that you your company has ticked the box of doing things equally but if there's a bias towards you actually doing it then what's the point in really even having it exactly exactly I always say to employers you know encourage them to take it and when they take that parental leave make a hero of them Make a hero of them because that's the only way that this is going to actually become something that happens rather than something that's just a theory, even in the countries where it's equalized. It's so true. It's so true. And clearly we have a a really long, long, long way to go. I'm interested in the women that do win at work. So given this is not the majority, this is very much the minority, but there are women of today and you are one that did extremely well 
and you know were in the 10 or 20 percent of women sitting in a in a boardroom at the exec level is there a common theme with those women that do make it and do win at work is it luck with the leadership around them or the fact that they're part of a progressive company is it intrinsic to them as an individual what is the commonality with with the women that win so it's absolutely not luck and you know there's a, a chapter in the book the women who win at work because we have 7% of CEOs are women it's not zero so so some women are are doing it um, I call them my super 7%. I interviewed a lot of them for the book, amazing women. And obviously they're all very different. They're very different personalities, lots of different things there, but they did have a few very clear things in common. And, you know, a couple of the most striking for me, the first one is this point about superpowers, right? These women from a very young age, from a really early stage in their careers, they were very aware of their strengths, their talents, their superpowers, they used them, leveraged them, and stayed away from the rest. So they got themselves into situations where they were using their superpowers and they were valued. They were seen and valued and leveraged. If they found themselves in, in one of those cultures, they stuck, they stayed, and they were very successful there. And as soon as they didn't, as soon as they felt I'm using my superpowers and I'm being authentic me and it isn't working here. They walked, they took their talent and their brilliance elsewhere. So there is that confident core that comes from knowing your superpowers and making them non-negotiable. You know, we, this is me. I know I'm brilliant at this. I'm not so hot at that. That's fine. I'm brilliant at this. If you can't see that and use it, I'll take it elsewhere. Their knowledge that it wasn't them that was the problem. It was their organization's inability to see and leverage their superpowers. Incredible self-awareness these women had from a very young stage in their career, much, 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 much earlier than I did, frankly. I know my superpowers now. I wish I'd known them sooner. I would really love it. I could take every girl on the planet and help her find her superpowers and her confident core, uh, I would do it. The second massive thing, and it's so relevant to what we've been talking about, of all the women that I interviewed, and frankly, every woman that I've ever looked at who I would class as a super 7% woman, not a single one of them has, in addition to having built their incredible career, also taken the lion's share of the responsibility for running the house, running the family, taking care of the kids. Not a single one. Some of them chose not to have kids. Absolutely, you know, that many women absolutely choose that. Some of them did have kids, have had kids, but have a partner who has been you know, absolutely either, you know, more than 50-50, frankly. Many have partners who've given up or ser seriously downsized their own career in order to take on the responsibility for running the home and taking care of the kids. So they've taken on the more tra that tra more traditionally female role of 80% of the work. They've had somebody who's done that. Or some of them 
have had kids, have had a partner. This is the minority, but they have had a partner who's also had a, a very important career. And they have just hired the hell out of staff. They have hired housekeepers, child care, and I mean, you know, full, full on. I, I would just love to say to all the women out there, if you're trying to be a top, a super 7% woman, a woman who makes it right up to those top leadership le leadership levels and also trying to be CEO of the house, please stop. It's not possible. It doesn't work. I never found a woman who's been able to do that. And it makes sense, right? We've got 24 hours. We've got 24 hours in the day. We need some sleep. We need some rest. We need some time for ourselves. We need to do a phenomenal job. We need to come out from that umbrella and do that networking and make ourselves visible. Where on earth is the time supposed to come to also take 80% responsibility for everything that needs to happen for the home and the family? It doesn't add up. And women who try to do it, something has got to give and either the career gives, which for many women, it does, despite the fact that she doesn't want it to, she's still ambitious. Or, frankly, even worse, her own physical and mental health gives. Exactly. And I guess as you grow up the ranks, and I'm interested in your opinion of this, as you're getting to the really senior kind of vice president level, demands of you get greater expectations of you get greater like you said your fuse probably gets shorter you want people to cut to the chase get get to the point did that pressure impact your ability to be the mother that you wanted to be for your son or impact on the relationship that you had or you found your way you know he was at an age where you, you found a way of making it work it's it's a massive question because as I look back I didn't compromise that relationship with him when he was young because you know he was when he was you know up to 10 or 11 I was dropping him at nursery or school picking him up obviously I wasn't spending the day with him but he was you know having the time of his life with all his friends I remember we would drive I had him in nursery and school close to work so we'd have a big drive in in the morning and a big drive home and I remember us having the radio on and singing songs he still remembers songs from the age of two that we used to sing in the car and you know and then I've always been somebody when I'm home I'm home right so I would leave at six I would close up the computer and I did not go back to the work I didn't and I have never worked evenings or weekends or holidays. Um, there's work time and there's home time and there's family time. And I've always been very, very strict about that. Life first, work second. So I absolutely think I did as good a job of that as I, I could have in those early years, given that I had a job and I, I wasn't obviously present the whole time, which I don't think is necessarily what a child needs anyway, by the way, to constantly constantly with his mother especially that would have uh, probably pushed me over the edge but what is interesting is then in his teenage years I was still very disciplined about start time and leave time but I was traveling an enormous amount 
the job just required me to be on a plane, in countries, visiting the markets, in Europe, in the US, in Africa, you know, wherever. And with hindsight, I didn't realize it at the time. I was absent a lot. So even in those evenings, I was relaxing, not working. I wasn't at home. And I remember, and here's the thing, right? You, when you're always with yourself, so you don't feel the absence of you. And I remember one time, I think my son must have been about 15 and I was home. It was a Wednesday night and I was home and, you know, my now ex-husband was there and my son and we were sitting having dinner and watching TV. And I said, oh, isn't it nice to just be having a normal, a normal evening in on the sofa? And my ex-husband said to me, this isn't a normal evening. A normal evening is is Joe and me on the sofa watching TV, having dinner, and you away traveling. This is an abnormal evening. And ouch, right? That that realization of how absent I was. And I think any parent knows once you've got through those teenage years, we think they need us most when they're babies and young kids. Actually, in many ways, they need us most when they're teenagers. And that doesn't mean they want us in their face. But I think they they need to know that you're there. And they might not talk to you. They'll probably just be in their room. But I think they like to know that you're there and that, you know, you're present. And that if they need you, they can call on you. And I think I, you know, I, I, I wasn't there enough at that time and I think I think I could have been I could have been a better mum if I was there and and you know there to engage he was never he wasn't going to call me he wasn't going to text me but you know what if I'd been there he might have had a might have had a chat and a cuddle with me so so yeah I think two halves of an answer to that and I think surprisingly biggest learning for me is don't assume they need you less the older they get and that you can work harder the older they get if in many ways it's the other way around. I think, I mean, that's an amazing message to, to sort of pass on because I think in so many ways there are so there's so much focus on the early years when they can't actually exist without you and probably less so in, in the later years. And it's important for a lot of women watching that have kids that aren't quite at the teenage stage it's an important message to sort of reflect on and think, even if I'm setting all the boundaries and I don't work weekends and I don't work evenings, am I still able to be as present as my child would expect me to be? And and in a 50-50 way, right? I mean, let's come back to the key point. It is not entirely the woman, the mum's responsibility to be there. But so I think it goes for all parents to, you know, be there right the way through the the teenage years as well but certainly wouldn't want any woman to take out that it's entirely her responsibility I was in that in his teenage years I wasn't doing 50 50 presence my his dad his dad was doing way more of his share of that and you know that's not it's not ideal so I I would change that definitely if I could now but hey you can't you can't change the past <laughs> you can't nope. you can't change the past 
My last question to you, Jill, is if there was one takeaway or action that you wanted to leave the ambitious women with that are listening today, and I have a heavily a female audience, as, as you can maybe imagine, what would that one takeaway or action be in terms of, I want to be in that that 7%, what are the things that maybe I can start to think about doing now to get there? It's so difficult to keep it to one, but I would say find your confident core. If you don't already know your superpowers, what makes you brilliant, because you are, you have things that you take for granted that nobody else can do. If you are not crystal clear on what those are, just invest a little bit of time to get crystal clear with something like Strengths Finder. I always say to him, give me 90 minutes and we will find your confident core. I, I know it's there. Do that because once you know your superpowers, you can be like those super 7% women. You know them, they're non-negotiable. If they're not being valued, leveraged in the work that you're doing, you'll have that confident core that will say to you, this is a, this culture is a problem. This culture doesn't work for me. I'm going to take my superpowers somewhere else. And you will also, everything you do, you will work from that confident core and you will speak from that confident core and people will hear it. They'll feel it. They will literally feel it. When you're in a meeting and you're talking from your superpowers and your confident core, people know, they feel that confidence. You have the confidence to say, well, I know my superpowers. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to stay away from the rest. I'm not going to get myself caught up into a debate or a, a discussion or giving a point of view on something I don't know about. I'm going to stick to what I do know about that. Just It just brings a natural confidence which is so important we all we value confidence in people right if somebody feels confident to us we trust them we give them work we give them money we give them jobs we give them promotions we give them leadership positions and the opposite is true if we don't feel that confidence we don't do any of those things so if you don't know your superpowers if you can't sit there now and say yeah i've got a confident core and the reason i call it confident core is it's like an apple, right? I think we're like apples. An apple, even if an apple apple is bruised and battered and has been kicked around the room and is just literally soft on the outside, look in the middle, there's a confident core there and we're all like that. And the reason it's so important is when things get rough and life does and work does, just being able to go back to that very, very solid core. So I'm going to be okay because I go back to that. So, so important. So if you haven't done that, do that. And never forget the umbrella theory. I'm going to squeeze that one in as well. Absolutely. And what a beautiful way to sort of summarize and, and end. Honestly, Jill, I feel if I could create the perfect person to interview, it would be you with your the passion for for what you what you do the message that you're sending which you know I'm also deeply passionate about your experience in in the corporate world and imparting that on businesses today people today the next generation it it really is just an honor to hear you speak about it and 
I know there will be so many people that will come away deeply inspired by your message and, and fingers crossed will be buying your book and wanting to to delve a bit deeper into some of those key key themes and, and topics that you talked about today. So a huge thank you. Thank you so much. That's very kind. So it's, it's an absolute pleasure to share it. You know, the reason I share it is because I, I was blindsided by all this stuff. I wasn't prepared for it. And I don't want young women to be blind. I want them to be ready because I think if they know this stuff is coming, they'll be ready for it. They'll be prepared. They'll manage it better. And then we have a better chance of getting to equality. So we don't stop till then. I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And if there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.